namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the uh, third one of these Sunday afternoon talks during the um, Vasa period, the Rains Retreat period. The, uh, the theme for the talk uh, today is Who Am I? Which uh, I probably didn't, uh, don't need to say, it's not just about who this person is, but who uh, all of us are. And that, uh, that kind of... Uh, inquiry that has been made by uh, uh, human beings, individuals, over many, many thousands of years. Uh, as we uh, start to, to grow up from our childhood into adolescence and uh, going into adulthood and uh, develop our, ourselves, or discover ourselves as, as individuals, then uh, this is often uh, a kind of question that we ask ourselves: uh, What uh, what's our real identity? You know, who who are we? Because we, uh, uh, as we grow up, we begin to experience different perceptions of ourselves. The other way, the ways that other people see us, the uh, varieties of different uh, situations we find ourselves in, and so it's very uh, natural to uh, to inquire, to to explore. Well, What's uh, what's the real me? What's the 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 the, uh, the person here that's important? What's the the real thing? And uh, in on when reflecting on this question, um, I was recollecting a um, uh, a talk I gave many years ago that was exactly on this kind of theme, and uh, I was re uh, thinking about it, remembering it, and. Uh, uh, the example I gave was from my own childhood, where um, I grew up in in Kent, in the countryside. And as I was going growing up through my teens, and uh, when I was uh, then leaving home and going off to to uh, college in London, London University, uh, I began to to realise that I lived in about five different worlds, and I was seen as as five different people. And that in each of these worlds were, were kind of distinct from each other, and so uh, this this sort of question of well, who am I? What's what's the real me uh, in all of this? So uh, as I said, I grew up in the countryside. My parents were um, very you know, average middle class English uh, country people. They were farmers, and um, they uh, the kind of environment I grew up in was with lots of dogs and horses, and so uh, uh, growing up in the countryside, then I went to lots of gymkhanas and horse shows and grew up um, amongst that sort of horse riding set and the people who were into uh, uh, hunting, shooting, fishing uh, in, the, <coughs> in the winter season, there would be fox hunting and such like. And so the, uh, uh, as a child and growing up and going to these, uh, these different competitions with ponies and horses, then I was very much identified with that, that world. So I was within that world, I was seen as as one of that crowd, you know, the horse riding, fox hunting, 
crowd. I think maybe some kind of karmic relationship I have with, with um, non-violence is that every fox hunt I ever went on, they never caught a fox. <laughs> so yeah, I was a member of the Asher Valley Hunt, uh, and they never caught a fox when I was, uh, when I was out with the hunt. So. I'm sure the foxes are grateful. <laughs> so there was that kind of uh, hunting, shooting, fishing world, and then uh, every summer I would either be part of or help out at the uh, the, the pony club's um, summer camp, and uh, be be part of all of that. And that was the one of the worlds I lived in. Now, then there was my family, and yeah, you know, my parents and grandparents, and uh, the my, my role as the uh, the. Um, the youngest child of, of three children, two sisters, and the, and the family stories and family history, and so there was the family world. Then there was the school, uh, the people I went to school with. Um, it was a, a, a local boarding school. I was a day pupil, but then the, 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 the people that I grew up with and were my school friends, they were a separate uh, crowd altogether, so there was very, very little overlap um, between them and the, the fox hunting crowd. So there's a sort of um, you know, hard drinking, partying, public school rowdies that uh, I spent uh, a lot of my youth with. <clears throat> That's where my accent comes from, <laughs> from Sutton Valence School in Kent. And uh, so that was a third world. And then uh, living in London, I was uh, at London University. I was a student studying uh, psychology and physiology at uh, Bedford College, London University. Um, at that time, it was in Regent's Park in the middle of London. So there was my role as a student, uh, uh, not a very diligent student, <laughs> uh, but still, you know, that was how I was seen as uh, someone in the, in the physiology, physiology department, psychology department, you know, someone studying for a degree and, uh, uh, and involved in that world of academic papers and writing essays and doing experiments and, and all of that. And then there was the, the people that I tended to hang out with in London, who were this sort of hippie, anarchist, uh, countercultural crowd. Uh, this was the mid-70s, so there was this... Um, and my, my college was in Regent's Park, and there was this uh, huge squat, uh, the, what was called Cornwall Terrace, one of the um, Robert Adam Terraces. A few of you probably might have even been there. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> we meet again. <laughs> But Cornwall Terrace was an extremely posh building that was occupied by a you know, large number of, of wild and woolly um, hippies and anarchists and freewheeling types. And so uh, I knew a lot of people at Cornwall Terrace and spent a lot of time uh, with them and was it in, in that kind of free festival, um, hippie anarchist crowd, people like Sid Rawl and Ubi Dwyer and uh, such characters who were around in that, uh, that era. So I began to wonder, well, which one's the real me? Is it I'm either the, the fox hunting type, or the hippie anarchist, or the or the uh, the academic, or the um, the kind of hard drinking uh, uh, public school uh, old boy and such like? So it was a puzzle, uh, and to, and so one of the things that I I really relish about uh, the years I had at uh, at university was that it gave me three years. Even though I, I suppose I should have been focusing on my academic studies <laughs> more, it was just giving me uh, three years to to look at that and, think, and to explore well, what really is important to me. And uh, the uh, the outcome of that was that the the only thing that was really important to me was spirituality. So that's why, as soon as I finished my degree, pretty much I took off for Asia and then ended up in a monastery. 
So, uh, but anyway, this is just my particular snapshot of, of the lives that I, have, uh, I was having at that time. But that really seeded that question. Uh, and and I, I, could, I could see then, and I can see now, how many of us uh, get uh, granted particular identities given by our family, saying, you know, you're going to be a doctor. Like, oh, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> or um, you're a woman, you're a man, you're, you're, uh, you're British, you're, you're Sri Lankan, you're Thai, you're, you're American, you're Portuguese, you're... You know, you get labeled by your nationality, by your gender, by your disposition, by your parents' expectations, the, just the, the forces of society in life kind of steer us into these different identities. And, uh, and that question of, well, who, who am I? And what's, what's really important? What's meaningful? This gets shoved into the background because I've got exams to pass. I've got, <laughs> I've got uh, expectations uh, of people to, to meet. And I've got my own ambition to, to fulfill. When we consider this, these issues of, of self, then this is not just an area that's dealt with by um, uh, you know, religious teachings, but also within the, the psychological uh, realm and philosophical realm as well. So you, uh, <clears throat> you can break down or look at the different kind of selves that we, uh, we conjure up or that we live with, uh, along with the particular career paths and such like. You know, all of us experience a, a variety of different things that we are, I say, referring to when we use the word I. So there's the, the bodily self. There's this, this person, the, this, this form that has a, a certain configuration, a, a height, a weight, an age, and so on. So there's the, the, the bodily self. We, when we say, you know, who am I? Well, I'm this, you know, this body. This is, this is what I am. And then there's the the self that is the, the, the center of perceptions, that I am looking at you. I'm sitting here with my back to the east, I'm facing to the west, I'm looking out here in the, in the sala at Amravati on a Sunday afternoon. So there's uh, the, myself who is sitting here and is, is and looking in that direction. So there's the self, the feeling of I that's built up out of the perceptions that we're experiencing um, and the perspective that, that we have. It may be if you're partially sighted or you're blind or you're, or you're hard of hearing or deaf, then you're experiencing a, a different configuration. If English is not your first language, then maybe there's a few of the words I'm using that you're struggling with and couldn't, can't quite catch and so on. Or just the very fact that you're looking this direction at one person and <laughs> I'm looking in that direction at 100 people. So there's the what you can call a perspectival self like the 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 eye that is generated from the 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 field of uh, perceptions that uh, are experienced then there's the the eye that makes choices you, you can say the in, intentional or the volitional self the the me that seems to be choosing the choosing which words to say choosing to come along to a, a sunday talk or there seems to be this me that makes decisions, you, who made the decision to follow your parents' expectations or to go to this school or rather that school or to wear this shirt rather than that shirt today. So there's the me who makes choices, you can say the, the intentional self. Then there, there's the, uh, what you can call the, the, the self that we create through our narrative, my story. I grew, I was born in Kent, <laughs> 1956. You know, that, and this is my story. So each of us has a, uh, a narrative, a, uh, like a, uh, a history 
that we tell when someone says, well, who are you? We say, well, I was born in Kent, or I was born in, in Surrey, or I was born in France, or uh, <clears throat> in Sri Lanka, Thailand. Uh, you know, that's who I am. This is my story. And we, we put together that kind of composite, so the, the narrative me. And then there is uh, who we are in society. People say, oh, you know, you're, uh, you're the Ajahn, or you're the doctor, or you're the Anagarika, you're the, uh, you're the guest nun. You are the uh, uh, you're one of the regulars to the Sunday afternoon talks. That's who you are. I see you all the time. So we we um, exist in society in a particular role. So I am Abbot of so my social self, if you like, in in this place is I am Abbot of Amravati. With my family, my social self is I'm the baby brother. I'm not the Abbot. <laughs> I'm, I'm the, the uh, to my sisters, I'm not their abbot. I'm not their Dhamma teacher. I'm their little brother. I'm not, I'm not complaining. That's just how, you know, in, in, the, in the society. So each of us participates in these different kind of selves. So when you say, well, who are you? You say, well, I'm a doctor, or, yeah, or I'm, I'm a Sri Lankan, yeah, I'm, I'm British, yeah. uh, I'm comfortable, I'm uncomfortable, uh, I'm sitting here, <laughs> yeah. I am 60 years old. All of these apply at different times, right? This is, this is uh, the kind of different uh, selves that we, we occupy or we, we kind of uh, take part in at any one particular time. Now, it's kind of interesting along the way that the, the Latin word for a mask is persona. We use the word person in English comes from the Latin persona. And the, the word per means through. And sona is sound. So persona is that which the sound goes through. So a persona is a mask. Like an, uh, like an actor on the Greek or the Roman stage would wear a mask. That's a persona. So right there in the word for one of these things, <laughs> it's a mask. It's a presentation. So uh, in, do you present your... Uh, you know, how do you present yourself as a woman, as a man, as old, as young, as a, as a Buddhist practitioner, as a doctor, as, uh, as a student? You know, uh, what's your mask? You know, who are you? And so that uh, right there in the very word that we use in English, there's a clue that this is a, um, an appearing, a, a seeming. It's, a, it's a, a mask. So then the question is, well, if, that's the, if the person is the mask, what's behind the mask? We'll get to that. <laughs> So it's very uh, interesting. I came across a few years ago that we we might think that um, that Buddhist teachings has a uh, have a kind of monopoly on insight into selflessness. But uh, there was a comment written by uh, the, the Scottish philosopher David Hume in his uh, treatise on human nature that he wrote in the 1730s, uh, where he said, "There are some philosophers who imagine." We are, every moment, intimately conscious of what we call our self. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble upon some particular perception or other, of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception, and never can observe anything but the perception. When my perceptions are removed for any time, as by sound sleep, so long am I insensible of myself, and may truly be said not to exist. I may venture to affirm of the rest of mankind 
that they are nothing but a bundle or a collection of different perceptions which succeed each other with an inconceivable rapidity and are in a, per a perpetual flux and movement. So uh, there are th some theories that David Hume actually came across Buddhist teachings when he was in, in France. Uh, in, uh, when he was writing that, that book, he was, there was also a Jesuit um, uh, uh, college in that little town uh, of La Fleche, in, in, uh, the College of La Fleche in France. So there's some theories that he, he got some Buddhist teachings from a couple of Jesuits, <laughs> one who'd been in, Thailand, in Siam and another who'd been in Tibet. But um, uh, I think also that uh, it's uh, not just David Hume, uh, or not just within the Buddhist field, but this is something that's been observed also by, you know, by the Greek philosophers also, like, uh, like Pyrrho in particular, who, uh, in the same way, when they, they look for this mysterious self who is the experiencer, the doer, the owner of the body, they, they, no particular thing can be found. When, when we look for the self, uh, the, the, the doer, the owner, the experiencer, when that I, that mysterious self, is searched for, no particular thing can be found. So, you know, I wouldn't say that the, the Buddha was the, uh, the only one who came across that, but certainly within, within other fields of, of study and, and thinking and exploration, human beings you know, around the world have, have had the same kind of uh, discovery. But uh, maybe I would, even though obviously I'm a little bit biased being a Buddhist monk, <laughs> I would say that uh, within the Buddhist tradition we have the most clearly articulated way of exploring this kind of question. And uh, particularly the Buddha's teachings on uh, the three characteristics of existence, on, uh, on impermanence or uncertainty, anicca, uh, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and not-self, anatta. These uh, teachings as being the, the universal characteristics of all experienced reality, um, I would say uh, is a most uh, comprehensive teaching and also that the practice of insight meditation vipassana as a way of exploring this feeling of i and me and mine the feeling of of being the feeling of self and identity it's the most clearly and fully articulated way of exploring that uh, again i admit i'm thoroughly biased <laughs> but i don't really know of any other spiritual method or psychological uh, method uh, around the world that, that looks uh, so directly and so fully and in such a, a comprehensive way at this, uh, at this experience. So when we talk about insight meditation or vipassana, then it's geared towards looking at the very nature of experience itself. Uh, you know, last week I was talking about uh, how the, the mind creates its own version of the world. So vipassana meditation is uh, uh, to do with the means whereby that world can be explored and can be seen in a, in a most complete and, and, and uh, unbiased way to see uh, its nature, what that, that world is. And in particular, uh, to explore this feeling of I, who is the experiencer of the world, or the one who's acting in the world, or the one who's the, the, uh, the, the, the apparent person who's uh, in the middle of the world or is, is the knower of the world. When we practice insight meditation, probably most of you are somewhat familiar with that, but the, the basic methodology is to uh, use uh, some means of calming the mind to focus the attention on the present using something like the mindfulness of breathing or using a, a mantra meditation or, or some way of establishing the mind in, 
to a degree of tranquility, and a degree of tranquility sufficient just to be able to keep the attention on the present moment. So with the mind being able to focus on the present, then uh, the, the flow of experience can be, uh, can be witnessed. So say, for example, you establish concentration by focusing on the breath. That helps the attention to be keyed into the present. Once the mind is, is calmed and focused and steady enough, the attention is grounded in the present reality, then rather than focusing on a particular object like the breath or a mantra or a, a, another feeling or a sound, then the attention is deliberately broadened to include the, all the flow of experience. So with what we call insight meditation, vipassana, as a deliberate opening of the field of attention. So rather than focusing on a single object, the whole content of the present becomes the meditation object. So whether the, the ears are receiving a sound or there's a sensation in the body or a memory arises or a, or a, a plan for the future or a, a wave of excitement or uh, irritation, uh, different emotions arise, then vipassana meditation is the process of recognizing, oh, uh, irritation arising and passing away, sound arising and passing away, feeling arising and passing away, remembering arising and passing away, planning arising and passing away. The mind stays in the position of, uh, of obser observation and reflection and is, uh, is uh, say, receiving and knowing and letting go of the, 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 all of the content of experience to be fully aware of the process of experience. So letting go of the content to know the process. So rather than, say, paying attention to the content of my uh, what I'm saying now, my words, just... Uh, in a sense, broadening the attention to think to to recognize, oh, sound is changing, hearing is changing, uh, perceptions are changing. So you're uh, deliberately taking the attention off the content, the sort of the meaning or the the value, even whether it's inside or outside, whether it's pleasant or painful, uh, sacred or profane or neutral. Rather, is it changing? Is it unsatisfactory? Uh, does it? Uh, can it be permanently pleasing? And and in particular, with respect to the theme for today, uh, is it mine? Is it is it something that belongs to me? And, and what if it does? What's this me that is the apparent owner? So that the process of insight meditation is built around, if if you like, deconstructing that sense of I'm sitting here paying attention to my body, or I'm sitting here meditating, I'm sitting here listening to the sounds of the the birds outside, or the the uh, I'm paying attention to the feelings in my legs. Uh, and it takes that initial experience and and then deconstructs it, rather than I am feeling this, I am doing this, I am uh, experiencing this. It uh, it deconstructs that. It's a is an insight. It's a seeing into the way that experience is formed, so that that sense of I'm here, the world is out there. I am meditating. I am hearing. I'm feeling. I'm thinking. I'm remembering. I'm planning. I'm wishing my thinking would stop. <laughs> Uh, whatever it might be, that it's deconstructing that the habitual judgment of self to look more deeply and completely into what this is, what this present uh, experience uh, uh, is formed of, and uh, what's its, what its reality uh, can truly said to be. So say, for example, when we're, we're sitting in meditation and you, you hear the sound of a bird, or, or here we're very blessed to be close to Luton Airport, so we have regular planes flying over, going this way, going that way. So you often have the sound of, of planes passing by. If you're on a meditation retreat with 55 other people, then there's plenty of people coughing, shuffling, clearing their throats. Um, 
So <clears throat> there's a hearing a sound. So when you hear a bird, you know, pigeons crewing in the morning or a plane going overhead, most of us don't have a sense of ownership of the sound. We don't say, that's my sound, or I own that pigeon's sound. <laughs> if you do, you've probably got some deep psychological problems. Yeah? <laughs> but and we wouldn't claim ownership of it. We might say, I, I, I hear it, I'm the one hearing the sound of the plane or the bird, or I'm the one hearing that person cough. But we wouldn't feel a sense of, of ownership of that object. So usually the, the easiest things to see as not-self and not being who and what we are is a perception, like seeing something. I don't think that red uh, of the back wall of the sala is mine or the blue of the carpet. I don't think of myself as, as, the, the, of the own, as the owner of that. I don't have a personal relationship with blue or red and so forth. So uh, perceptions are the easiest thing, I would say. Um, people's experience varies, so this is, these are generalizations, but generally... Uh, it's easiest to see that, that this is not mine or not who and what I am. So uh, then uh, a little bit more challenging is, is uh, feelings, like sensations in the body, so that uh, you might be able to, to not identify with the sound of a plane or that when you explain, well, that, even that feeling of me hearing, that's not really a me, that's just, there's hearing, that's all. And that's fairly easy to let go of and to not identify with. That pain in the leg, it's like, ow, that that's really feels like my knee, ow, uh, and so that that's more personal. It's more immediate. But again, when that's explored, there's a feeling of my pain, my knee. Oh dear, what's happening there? Uh, but when that's in the same way explored and examined, well, if it, how is that uh, that pain mine? And if it is mine, what's the me that is the owner? Like David Hume, sort of looking for you know, who's the experiencer. You, you know, you can't find the, can't find a self who is the, the the one who owns the perceptions. Yeah, okay, I can say that's I'm feeling pain, or that's my my knee that's hurting. What's the what's the referent? What's the me that is the owner? What does that look like? Is does that have a shape, a location? You know, uh, what the size, a weight? Uh, what is it? Yeah, and there are no defined form or quality can really be found other than the knowing. So then sensation's a little bit easier to, to, uh, to let go of than the next layer in, which is thoughts and that, that uh, trusty narrative self, the, the me, the my, uh, my meditation, my life, my, uh, my debts, my, uh, my, uh, my hopes, my uh, uh, achievements, my problems, the, the stories that the mind tells so that even if uh, it, uh, with insight we can let go of uh, the sensations and to see those as being not who and what we are or not having an owner, then those thoughts, those memories and all the things I've done well, all the things I've done badly, the things I should be doing, the, my views and opinions about the people that I live with, my family, and uh, then all of that seems a lot more personal. Memories of things you know, that only we remember, no one else knows about, you know, that thing that I did back when I was four years old, you know, no one else knows. It's a huge secret. I was the only one who, who understood you know, who burnt down the barn. You know? <laughs> I didn't, that I'm aware of. <laughs> but So something that only, we think only we know about, no one else knows about, that's incredibly personal, that really seems to have this uh, I and mind quality. That again, that's all. There's there's a memory that arises. It takes shape, does its thing, passes away. Um, it's got this name written on it, but 
you know, what is that name referring to? And I say, I remember, or I did, or that's that was me who, who did that, who felt that, who achieved that. Uh, then to uh, it takes a little bit more to to uh, deconstruct those stories, but again, with insight, then uh, the more that they're explored and examined uh, and investigated, then even those stories and that those those narratives of our life and our our. Uh, all the you know the rights and wrongs and injustices and uh, and uh, achievements and so forth identities uh, uh, that come from our stories they too can be seen as being you know, empty of, of self and what belongs to a self. So then, a little bit further in, um, beyond uh, uh, the thoughts and those stories. Uh, then uh, kind of connected to them, but but uh, even more deep uh, are those uh, the emotions that are associated with it. So not just sensations of pleasure or pain in the body, but the emotions of um, say uh, that you are heartbroken, you know you have you know, unrequited loves, or you have resentments of you know how you've been done wrong by the government or by your your ex partner or by your current partner, <laughs> your ajahn, you know. Um, and those uh, strong emotions, feelings of jealousy, feelings of, of infatuation, feelings of irritation, feelings of resentment, feelings of, of excitement. So that the even uh, I would say for most people, even more uh, more deep than the thinking, the emotions seem to be really real and substantial. No, I, you know, but I, I know I should love that person, but I, I hate him. <laughs> I can't, you know, and I can't stand that person. I can't. I can't get rid of that feeling. I, you know, I see that person. I just hate them. So, uh, or I don't love them, or whatever it might be. So that, uh, but in exactly the same way, uh, along with conceptual thought and those narratives, emotions uh, and seemingly strong and uh, and uh, deep emotions can still seem to be uh, real and substantial until they're you know opened up and explored. So, like the like the layers of the onion, you're kind of going deeper and deeper into this onion of, of identity and uh, but each layer in where it seems to be more substantial more uh, more essential more real uh, as the mind explores and examines and questions then each layer is revealed to be well now that's there isn't really anything there there's no person there there's no substantial real I and then uh, maybe the most difficult thing to uh, uh, or most convincing aspect of of identity is the choice maker that which is say, I decide. I decided to come to the Sunday afternoon talk. I decided to pick this title. <laughs> I, uh, I'm choosing to get up and leave the room. I, I'm choosing to uh, speak to this person and not speak to that person. It really feels like there's a me who's making decisions. And then you know, if you have uh, been studying Buddhist teachings and Buddhist philosophy, that, yeah, but surely, Ajahn, we're the owners of our karma, we're the heirs to our karma, born, you know, born of our karma, related to our karma. That karma is the choices, it's the intentions. That's karma is real, right? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so that that can seal, seem like the most sort of gritty and uh, gnarly uh, uh, and substantial uh, basic quality of identity is that you know, the choice maker the, this this me that is deciding and and uh, uh, following different impulses towards kindness and generosity or towards you know selfishness and so on, but again in exactly the same way and I, you don't have to believe me but uh, hopefully with with uh, meditation and exploration you can see this for yourself when you open it up 
there, even with an intention and a choice, uh, when you dis deconstruct it a little bit, there's still no no person there. Like the uh, there's a, a the mind is presented with a variety of possibilities. So um, I could do uh, there's this 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 and this. So what looks most interesting? So there's the perception of the, the possibilities. Then there's the memory. Okay, what was what had a pleasant result in the past? What had a painful result in the past? So the 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 perception of the possibilities is not self. Memory, remembering past successes, failures, pleasure, pleasure and pain, is not self. Then <clears throat> the the recognition. Okay, well that 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 worked well last time. That memory seems to match this possibility. Um, uh, so maybe that's the best way forward. So that also that perception, uh, that that thinking. Uh, that kind of calculation is also not self. It doesn't really uh, have an owner. And then that <coughs> uh, the uh, the choice to say, well, let's try that one and see what happens. That's also a, a thought. And then the the action following it, the choosing to walk that way or speak in those words, uh, the, those uh, actions of moving or, or those words that arise, those similarly are not who and what we are. They're not self. They don't have an owner. And, uh, once again, that. I'm making these kind of broad statements, but uh, uh, and they are open for discussion. But I would suggest that when you you take a even a, a decision-making process apart, you really can't find anybody there that's doing the choosing. <laughs> so yes, there are the laws of karma. This action brings this result. But when you look for the uh, individual entity who's the owner of the karma, it's re it's really difficult to find. <laughs> you know. What that is, or to to uh, uh, say to fix that as a separate individual entity. Now the the Buddha was a, was a pragmatist, not a uh, an idealist, which means to say he taught in a very pragmatic way. So he didn't say the true self is this. You know, your true self is say the, is the um, uh, is the absolute reality. Or he didn't use kind of highfalutin philosophical metaphysical language to talk about a true self or a real self or the real me uh, because he realized uh, to some extent whatever you can and, and he said these words whatever you conceive it to be the truth is always other than that yena yena hi manyanti tatatanghoti anyatati whatever you conceive it to be the fact is always other than that so whatever you think you are that thought can't be it <laughs> so he realized that from very early on so he his whole method was to teach us how to stop identifying with what we're not, and then what is real becomes apparent on its own. Then the thinking mind can jump in and say, that's what I am. <laughs> I'm undifferentiated awareness, that's what I am. But that's just a thought. <laughs> that's just a collection of words and concepts. That thought of I, I am this or that, that thought is not what we are. That's just a thought. <laughs> so the Buddha's method was to try and help us to establish that mind which abides in that quality of, of liberated awareness rather than creating a concept which is something that the mind grabs onto and tries to get born into. Now, the, one of the most helpful methods of exploring this and developing this, this kind of insight, uh, many years ago, back in uh, 1981, if I remember correctly, it's a long time ago now, <laughs> getting uh, over 35 years ago, nearly 40 years ago, so during the, one of the first winter retreats that we had at uh, Chithurst, uh, this was before any of the branch monasteries uh, uh, op were opened up by Ajahn Sumedho in this country. 
So this was, uh, say, the the uh, winter of 1981. So we had a community retreat at, at Chithurst. And uh, the house was still a bit of a wreck. So we only had what's now the reception room there. The, the, the shrine room in the house still had a huge hole in the floor. <laughs> There was, there was holes in the roof, and uh, much of the building was uninhabitable. But we did have the shrine room, the, the, what's now the reception room. So we were all gathered in there for our, our winter retreat. And the winter retreat was only two weeks long or three weeks long. But during this time, then, uh, there was a, a couple of meditation methods that Lumpur Sumedho taught that were incredibly helpful. And he taught a particular method of inquiry that he had used himself before he, he became a monk in Thailand. And uh, first of all, he, uh, he began teaching the meditation on what's called the, the sound of silence or the, the inner sound, the, the nada uh, in Sanskrit, which is uh, the, uh, listening to uh, uh, the sort of background tone that appears in, in our hearing. For most people, if you listen closely, there's a kind of high-pitched, uh, uh, subtle tone that's in the background of, of the of hearing uh, almost all the time. Some people have tinnitus, and say, yeah, it's not in the background now, John. I can't get it to shut up. I've, been, I've spent thousands of pounds you know, trying to get rid of it. So for most people, it's in the background. Some people, it's very much in the foreground. But uh, uh, it's, a, 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 it's a, a faculty of the experiential world and the hearing that uh, it can be used as a meditation object. So uh, Lumpur Sumedho had used this a lot himself as a, as a, a focal point for meditation. And so the English winters, particularly in the countryside, are very, very quiet. So he'd begun to teach this meditation on the inner sound as a, um, uh, an alternative to mindfulness of breathing. So that there was uh, a, uh, a, a lot of, um, sort of quietness and a lot of focus, uh, even though it was about 25 or 30 people squished into a very small room. <laughs> uh, uh, so that... that uh, uh, teaching of the the, folk, uh, the meditation on the inner sound was is a very helpful sort of pre- uh, preparation, and then uh, he brought into the picture the use of inquiry and asking this very question: Who am I? So he would uh, he uh, would encourage us to focus on the inner sound, to uh, concentrate on that as much as possible, and when the mind was really quiet and there was just the hearing of the the nada then to drop into that internal space, the psychological space, the question, who am I? To, to put aside all other thought and question and just to ask very sincerely and very directly, who am I? Now this was a method, as I said, that he had uh, used before he went to Ajahn Chah's monastery and he'd, he'd learnt it uh, when he was in the American Peace Corps. Uh, he lived in, in Borneo in uh, a little town called Semporna. He taught Chinese. He, he was a Chinese speaker. Lumpur Sumedho studied Chinese at university and uh, taught in a Chinese school in, uh, in Borneo. And he was very interested in Buddhism, and particularly in Zen Buddhism. And uh, he had a friend who um, sent him these books that were written by Charles Luke, who was a, a, one of the early Buddhist scholars. And there was a series called Chan and Zen Training that uh, had been translated by, uh, written and ch- translated by Charles Luke. Um, and in one of them, there was the Dharma talks from a, a meditation retreat led by uh, Great Master Shu Yun, and it was a retreat that he had led at the age of 114 in uh, in Shanghai, and uh, and in these talks, and he describes this method of meditation on the question, "Who am I?" 
uh, and the, the, exactly with this method, you bring the mind to a, 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 as, quiet, a, as deep a quality of quietness as possible, and then the, the mind poses the question, who am I? Now the point of the question is not to come up with some kind of clever philosophical answer, and your own name is definitely not the answer. <laughs> It's not, that's not what it's about. But rather, it's, it's called a, a, the Chinese speakers here, well, hopefully you will forgive my, my bad pronunciation, but it's called a hua to. Is that right? Yeah? Close enough? <laughs> so it means that the head and the tail. And so that the, the, the question is the head, and then the silence that follows the question, the sort of, the, the pause, the gap in the mind before the thinking sort of wades in and says, I'm, I'm, I'm awareness, that's what I am, or I'm the one who knows, <laughs> or I am Somedo. Yeah. Um, or he would have been Robert then. But uh, uh, before the thinking mind jumps in, uh, that becomes the object of attention. So that, that the, uh, the, the question is the head, and then the tail is really the, the important bit. <laughs> so that the... Uh, he used this and found it incredibly helpful as a meditation. So he would ask that question, who am I? And then focus on that gap. Uh, because when the mind, is very, the mind is not busy, it's very quiet and focused, then when you drop that into the, to the, um, the space of the mind, what it recognizes is, who's the wrong question? This isn't a who, it's more of a what. And so, in, in a sense, it trips up the thinking mind. It trips, it trips up the self-creating mind, the ahankara, the eye-making mamankara, the mind-making habit. It kind of falls over its own feet because at that moment, the intuition says, who? It, who doesn't really apply? Uh, and so before any thought takes shape, there's this kind of space, this gap, as uh, Lumpur Sameda would call it. And he say, that's the that's the, the the thing to aim the attention on is that gap before the thinking mind and the the self-creating mind wades in and starts creating some idea of a me in that moment the mind is awake there's no sense of self uh, there's a quality of simplicity and limitlessness that's that's the answer <laughs> as it were and so then as, and you can develop this. So I found that incredibly helpful teaching and a very, very powerful practice to do. Because, as I said, when you ask the question, who am I, uh, after asking it a couple of times, who becomes ridiculous. So then you, you can... And also, you, it's not that you can only ask who am I, but you can tweak the question or the statement. So then I would... So instead of asking who am I, then I'd say, what am I? What? Am I? Because what seemed to be more realistic than who? But then the I started to feel really weird. Like, well, that the I doesn't quite seem to match the reality. So then rather than what am I, I, uh, I let that develop into what is it? But then even the it <laughs> started to feel kind of cumbersome and clunky and like, well, that's, this isn't really an it. So then, uh, as the inquiry would develop, I'd notice that even asking what is it seemed to be uh, out of place or, or, or too sort of intrusive or kind of filling up the space of awareness. So I began to just use what. <laughs> then even what is too presumptuous about, well, it's saying that there's a thing here, or the thing that's a knower or a thing that is known. Even what uh, seemed to be too much until finally there's just this 
question mark. And then the and then the question mark would disappear and there's just the point. And then even the point would disappear and there's just pointlessness. So this talk is about being completely pointless. <laughs> there's a, incidentally, as, a, as an aside, there's a really wonderful little cartoon by, uh, with songs by Harry Nilsson called The Point, which is a very, very beautiful sort of exploration of this similar kind of area for children, about this, uh, this child who's born, everyone is born in the land of point, and every, everybody has a point on their head, and this one little kid is born called Oblio, who has no point. And he goes off, he gets thrown out of the village because he hasn't got a point. And then he gets banished to the pointless forest. Anyway, that's a bit of a side issue. But uh, in terms of this, uh, this kind of, uh, this area, I, I really recommend this as a, as a practice. Because, and some people have criticized it, this as saying, asking who am I, that's ridiculous. The Buddha said all dhammas are not self, so it's a pointless question. That's the point. <laughs> The point is that you discover it's a wrong question, but not as a theory or as an, as, a, as an idea, but you discover it's the wrong question from your own wisdom. Your own wisdom recognizes this isn't really a who. The mind is not a person. Oh, and not just as hearing the words. Like You can hear me say the mind is not a person, but it's discovering that kind of from the inside, as it were. So the, the, the point of this kind of inquiry is that is as a revealing the presumptions that the mind makes about what we are and opening that up and then using that uh, experience of the of the mind knowing that that gap knowing that spaciousness when the question falls away and before an answer forms and letting that in a sense be the baseline of experience now, in, in other spiritual traditions say um like uh, in uh, advaita vedanta they use um the kind of opposite approach where they meditate on the I am. And so when they ask the question, who am I, rather than, than the, uh, the so Buddhist approach of emptying out the I am, <laughs> they, uh, they take a, a sort of have a different philo philosophical framework. But I would suggest, and maybe you know, this can be discussed a bit more in the, in the questions and answers and discussion time, uh, I would suggest that the point is exactly the same, or that the, the method is really a little bit different, but, the, but the, the goal is exactly the same. So rather than taking the I am and emptying it out and seeing it as intrinsically void of substance, it kind of expands the I am to include everything. And so whether it, it, but it's also, you know, when say I am, you know, but taking a, a concept like I am the universe or I am everything, uh, rather than I am nothing, you know, that uh, both of them are ways of approaching the mind's habit of conceiving and rejigging the the way that it is looked at and, and explored in order to help the the your own wisdom faculty your own heart to know the reality of what is now in the in buddhist philosophy there are uh, two different layers or two different ways of of, of this letting go of of self uh, is talked about so sort of two different depths of you know kind of different uh, distances into the onion, if you like. So the the uh, uh, the Buddha used a framework of ten fetters, or what are called the samyojana, samyojana as the ten obstacles to enlightenment. So a fetter is like handcuffs or shackles or chains. That's what a fetter means. So the ten fetters of the ten chains or handcuffs and things that 
that uh, tie the heart down. So uh, and they, uh, they represent the, the different levels of enlightenment. So that the first level in, of enlightenment, stream entry, uh, involves uh, shedding, well, uh, letting go of the first three fetters. And of those three fetters, number one is self-view, sakaya ditti. So uh, this, and when we talk about letting go of self or, or the development of insight into not-self, the, the first layer is this uh, the insight into self-view, into sakaya ditti. And so, uh, again, Lumpur Sumedha would very helpfully describe this as identification with the body. It's the, it's the belief, I am the body, I am the personality. I am this person. I'm a woman, I'm a man, I'm old, I'm young, I'm English, I'm French, I'm, I'm Thai, I'm Sri Lankan, I'm American. That's what I am. So Sakaya Ditti is that belief that, that those are true and substantial qualities. To break through Sakaya Ditti is to recognize that can't be the whole story. That's not really what I am. So that... Uh, the, so that that's a, in the so in order for stream entry to be realized, that level that level of of attachment identification has to fall away. But there's a whole extra layer, so way for, a lot deeper into the onion, um, uh, which is not broken through until arahantship, which is called asmi mana. So you have you know, four levels of uh, of enlightenment, stream entry. Not, uh, once returning, non-returning, and then arahantship, full enlightenment. So the 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 more subtle level of identification is uh, um, called asmi mana. Asmi means uh, uh, means I am. It's the Pali for I am. Mana is conceit. So it's called the conceit of identity, or the or the this conceit of I am. And there's a very uh, very lovely teaching I reflect on and, and quote quite often, and it's a. It concerns a monk called a venerable Kemaka, and he was very old and reaching the end of his life. And so he's living in this monastery, and his friends said, well, Kemaka, you're getting towards the end of your life. Have you completed your practice? Have you realized arahantship yet? And uh, he's on his deathbed, and so he sends, uh, and there's a whole sort of beginning part of the sutta where he sends a message back saying, yeah, no, I haven't reached the end of the path yet. And they say, well, how, how have you not reached the end of the path yet? sends messages back and forth. And finally, he gets so fed up with these friends of his harassing him from a distance, he gets up and goes to go and visit them. <laughs> gets off his deathbed. So, these <laughs> bloody friends of mine won't leave me alone. <laughs> so anyway, it turns into this dialogue uh, between Venerable Kamaka and his friends. And uh, so uh, and he gives this very beautiful analogy. He says, um, you know, I- I've been practicing a long time and there, there is no identification with any of the five khandhas. So with the body, with feelings, perceptions, mental formations, or consciousness, discriminative consciousness. So it's really clear. Uh, so he's, he's saying, I definitely self-view, sakaya ditti, has really been broken through. There's no, I, you know, there's no belief that I am the body, I am the personality. But there's still this feeling of I that is around. It's not attached to anything, but it just persists. He says, like with a flower... You can smell the flower, but you can't tell where the fragrance comes from. Does it come from the petals or from the pollen or from the stamens or the sepals or the stalk? You can't tell, but the fragrance is there. He said in exactly the same way that this feeling of I is here, but it's not attached to the body or my thoughts or my feelings or my or emotions or any of it, but it's still as this I feeling. And, uh, and, and But as he's giving this description about, and so he's describing asmimana, that, so asmimana is that that what they call a conceit of identity that is not attached to any particular thing, any experience, 
but in it, in and of itself, it's like the core, um, say, contraction of mind that says I. <laughs> Even if it's not I am anything, it's just this I-ness, me-ness, or in Pali, ahankara, made of I am, mamankara, made of mindness. And uh, very uh, interestingly, I think it's the only instance where he actually became an arahant hearing his own Dhamma talk. Because he, he sort of completed his practice as he's giving this, expre- this explanation to his friends. And so a few of them became arahants as well. So it's, uh, you can get enlightened hearing your own Dhamma talk. So if people complain about you talking to yourself, you can maybe use that as an excuse. I'm trying to, I'm trying to enlighten myself by hearing my own Dhamma talk. You know. So the uh, another of the so this is um, uh, as I was saying earlier that whatever you conceive it to be the the truth is always other than that yena yena hi manyanti tatatanghoti anyatati so that's a common phrase that the Buddha uses uh, in the teachings and it's it's a simple statement whatever you conceive it to be the truth is always other than that which means that the reality of what is or kind of what we are is inconceivable it's it's a uh, it's not something that can be conceived. Now, when we talk about a concept, uh, in the Western world, we praise and revere thinking, and we assume that a thought is the ultimate reality. In the Buddhist uh, understanding of things, it's kind of the opposite. And the Buddha says, conceiving, manyati, conceiving is a cancer, it's a disease, it's a, it's a problem. <laughs> it's, it's alien, it's a state of suffering. That, conceiving that say I am this as soon as a this is real this is true as soon as the mind takes a thing and tries to make it real or make this this I as an individual entity right there is dukkha and so some people might feel that uh, it's a kind of nihilistic philosophy but uh, I would say it's quite the opposite rather the Buddha's teaching this to help us to stop suffering to to not be creating those those I ams and oftentimes when uh, we reflect on anatta or people talk about anatta then they think well it means i have to believe i don't exist that you know that i'm you know i i'm i'm not real and that's it's confusing because uh, uh, for many people because it can seem to say that that i'm supposed to believe i i'm not here <laughs> when our experience of this present reality is the most real thing we know our whatever color or shape or, or flavor it has this quality of awareness, this knowing of this present, this is the most real, this, this is in my experience, this is the most real thing there is, is knowing, is being aware. But, uh, uh, and so it can be frustrating that the Buddha says, well, you can't, but you can't conceive, as soon as you try to conceive that or put that into a box or make it into a, a, a person or an identity, the, the heart has lost that, the reality of that uh, that. Uh, awake quality it's sort of it's being born into a box into a pod into a uh, a, a limitation into a persona into a, a mask and there's a, the last thing i'd like to share uh, as for this talk is a, a teaching that i've reflected a lot recently where the buddha is kind of talking about his own subjective experience uh, and it's in the, a dialogue between the buddha and vachagota who's one of his indefatigable inquirers when he uh, he was a wanderer. He wasn't originally a disciple of the Buddha. He was a, a wanderer from a different group. But he kept coming to see the Buddha and ask questions. And, and uh, off in the future, the, the whole book about Vajragata deserves to be written. But I've got other books on the go already. <laughs> One day. 
<laughs> I'd like to write a whole collection of things about the Buddha and Vachagota. But anyway, in this dialogue with Vachagota, it's where the Buddha's the Vachagota has been asking the Buddha, what happens to an enlightened being after the death of the body? Where do they go? And the Buddha's already explained that you, you can't say where do they go. Reappears in another place doesn't apply. Doesn't reappear does not apply. Both reappears and doesn't reappear does not apply. Neither reappears nor does not reappear. None of those apply. And Vachagota's like, uh, it's got to be one of those, please, give me a break. Yeah. And uh, the Buddha said, said Vacha. And then he took, so then this is where the Buddha talks about his own subjective experience. I mean, I know it's not quite accurate to say that, but close. What he says is that he's talking about his own experience. He says, Vachagota, <clears throat> uh, that whereby one, that material form, uh, whereby one trying to describe the Tathagata, the, the Buddha, would describe him. Uh, that material form, that feeling, that perception, that mental formations, that consciousness, that one trying to describe the, the Tathagata would describe him, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions of existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, feeling, Perceptions, mental formations, discriminative consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the ocean. So the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of material form, the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. He is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the ocean. So he is, there's an isness. But that isness can't be reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, three-dimensional space, time, individuality. None of that applies. Like all of that does not apply. That whole languaging, that framework does not apply. But there's, you know, the Tathagata is. <laughs> so it kind of takes away our familiar handholds and reference points with one hand, but says, yeah, but here is the Tathagata. <laughs> This is the, this, and when the Buddha, we talk about the Tathagata, it's not just talking about the Buddha as a spiritual teacher of 2,500 years ago, but it's talking about that, that knowing mind of yours, that in you which is awake, is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the ocean, but is also uh, cannot be reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. So on that point, uh, uh, I think it's time to pause. Time for a cup of tea, this being England. <laughs> Have a tea break, and then we can uh, come back together again about 20 past for discussion and questions and uh, responses. <laughs>